Well, let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, it is a privilege to be in this room together today. We recognize that there are people with health issues that are not able to be here. We recognize that worldwide there are all kinds of believers who desperately love to worship with other believers and they either don't know any or it might not be safe. Lord, comfort us in our pain. And Lord, we thank you that our pain reminds us of our need for you, our desperate need for you, and also reminds us that we have a future and a hope that as believers, Lord, we confess we do not often think enough of that. Lord, thank you that we can worship you together today. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you're there in, in Psalm 137, before we get to Psalm 137, just a little bit of, of background. Uh, Psalm 120 through 134 are psalms of ascent. These are psalms that would be sung as they were going up to worship. And um, they're, they're as upbeat as any psalms in, in that, that we have. And a lot of those will be familiar to you, but in Psalm 121, verse 1, this great psalm. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 123, verse 1. To you, God, I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Uh, as I turn a page, uh, Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like precious oil on the head, running down the beard. It's this great rejoicing psalms in these psalms of ascents. And then you've got a couple of psalms, Psalm 134, uh, Psalm 135 and 136 are no longer psalms of ascents, but they're really upbeat as well. You know, Psalm 135, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord. Psalm 136, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And thanks and thanks and thanks and thanks. And then you get to... Psalm 137, and there's weeping, and there's slavery, and there's tormentors, and there's murder, and there, there's the desired killing of children, and we should be rightly saying, what is going on here? God's children are asking, how can we worship in the midst of this desolation, this absence of God, these pagan victories? And then we today, we sing great songs, we sing songs like, Faith is the victory we know that overcomes the world. We sing songs like, let your truth prevail. And we have glorious things in a church. And you know, we have new families join the church. We have people come to Christ. We have these little babies being born. We have rejoicing, rejoicing, rejoicing. But at the same time, we have a lot of hardship too. And there is a, a huge human tendency to think, my family or myself, I'm going through hard things right now. But boy, all I see is victory and success for others. There might be a person or two you think, well, clearly that person is really dealing with difficulty. But, but by and large, these people, people are well-dressed and their lives are pretty good and they have better jobs. But oh, person in this room, people are hurting and people are going through difficult things. And there's different levels of it. There is some deep anguish that Pastor Keith talked about. But there's personal things like job struggles and financial struggles and some health struggles that a lot of people don't even let other people know. Life is hard. 
on this sojourning, on this road of I'm on the road, but I'm not yet home, can we worship? Not can we sing. Any one of us can get and can sing along and say some words and be here and move and go back home and nothing happened. But can we worship? Can we drive in our pickup and saying, my God is good and God here is how you are good. Can I sit down with someone else at a meal and not just run through some words of a prayer, but can I say, wow, we serve an almighty God. Can we come and corporately say our God is great and can we do those things when life is hard? Well, I'm going to argue today and the psalmist is going to argue that we can. And we can, and I broke it down these three ways. We can if we see our lives within redemptive history, that God has a plan, that he's working, that is trustworthy, and we are part of it. Two, if we see God as our highest joy, all kinds of things in life can, can bring us joy and happiness, and that is great. But is God our highest joy? And three, do we see God as he truly is? Every one of us is tempted to want a God made in our image, who does what we want him to do, who acts in a way that's consistent with what we desire. I think the psalmist is going to argue we need to see God as he truly is. And if we do so, we can trust him absolutely, and we truly can worship. So if we start off in Psalm 137, we need to see our lives within redemptive history. There's a history of rebellion against God. There's a history of God bringing punishment. We look at Adam and Eve. We see sin. We look at God's interaction with Cain, and he says, Behold, sin lies at the door. And what does Cain do? He kills his brother. And we see this pattern of sin and rebellion over and over and over. And one of the things I love to do as I read the Old Testament, I'm saying, wow, here is sin and here is failure. But God's not okay with that. God brings punishment. So much times brings punishment. And sometimes he delays it. There'll be, Israel will be in sin. And if you look at a timeline, 80 years later, God brings punishment. And sometimes he'll say it's, be, it's because of this sin 80 years ago. And how forgetful are we? If I don't get my hand slapped in 10 minutes, we can feel like, eh, it wasn't that big of a deal. But we see this repeated pattern of sin and rebellion and God's redeeming love bringing back. And we see that with Israel over and over and over in God's love and, and God's reaching down to them and God's forgiveness of them and God's reconciliation. And we see that pattern over and over and over and it leads us to Christ. And we say, boy, I need Christ because I am a sinner. I need him. I, I sin, I fall short, I need Christ. And as we see that, that picture of God's redemptive story it reminds us of both what we need and reminds us of what God has done. There'll be a map on the screen. If you want to turn with me to 2 Kings 24, you can, but you don't, you don't need to. But there was big-time rebellion of the, of the northern ten tribes. And in 722 B.C., the Assyrians came down, basically wiped out the top ten tribes, hauled them off to the north, and, and brought um, some outside peoples in. They intermarried, intermarried and serious judgment on them. The bottom two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, maintained a more God-honoring life, generally, for about another hundred years. They had warnings from the prophets. They had repeated failures. 
And eventually, in the year 605 B.C., um, Josiah goes up against, in battle, against um, Pharaoh Necho of uh, Egypt, and he's killed. And Josiah has some reforms. They're fun to read about. Josiah's kids, nephews, they're all rotten. And um, 2 Kings 23 deals with some of that. And then in 2 Kings 24, so in, in 2 Kings uh, 23, um, the, the Babylonians eventually come in and they conquer Israel in kind of a, 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 a the, the kingdom of Judah in kind of a small way. Um, take some people, haul some people off. And we say small way on our end because it's just not nearly as bad as a conquering that then happened a few years later in 597. The 597 is talked about in 2 Kings 24. And it says in verse 10, at that time, again, these kings were doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. It says the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his ser servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon. And it basically says a huge group of them were deported. And on the map, you'll see that it was taken back to, um, taken back to Babylon. They were hauled back there. And that's probably the deportation that's happening in what we're looking at today. Um, and actually, if you go on into the next chapter, into 2 Kings 25, it deals with uh, another one because uh, Judah rebels again, says, hey, Babylon, we're not going to deal with this anymore about 10 years later. And in 586, Nebuchadnezzar comes down and just hammers the place, cleared it out, and um, showed his judgment on them. And all of that, we can look at that and we can say, oh, that's a historical fact. Oh, that's, a, that's some things that happened in the past. Wow, God really worked in this way. But there is great health in us today saying, how is God choosing to work? And we can see patterns of God forbearing. God choosing to not punish immediately. God repeatedly warning. We have words from the prophets saying, turn from your sin, turn from your sin, turn from your sin. And God at times will then say, I'm not going to turn anymore. You're going to face wrath. You're going to face punishment. And when we see ourselves within that context, there's health in that. So what does it say in Psalm 137, verse 1? Probably these individuals, and who was this? Probably a musician. We really don't know the author. Um, in the second deportation, there were more educated, wealthy. Uh, this could have been the one that Daniel and his friends were taken on, although they were probably taken in 605. And the latest one in 586, they just wiped people out primarily. So who is this author? We don't know, but he says this. He says, by the waters of Babylon, so we're getting close to Babylon, there we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. It's another name for Jerusalem, city of God. On the willows there, on the trees there, we hung up our lyres. We hung up our instruments. And for there our captors required of us songs. Our tormentors, mirth, saying, sing to us, of the songs of Zion. Well, what are the songs of Zion? Well, some of those would be some of the psalms that we have read and sung this morning. Some of those would be the psalms of ascents, those upbeat psalms that I started off reading, where they're saying, wait, how, look how great God is. Look how God works on our behalf. Look how strong God is. And these tormentors, these captors are saying to him, hey, sing us some of those songs. Hey, sing us some of your church songs. Hey, sing us some of those songs about how great God is. Because where's your God now? Why are they weeping? Well, they have murdered loved ones, loss of home. They're captives. 
And on this worst day, they're getting mocked. And their God is getting mocked. Their beliefs are getting mocked. Their country is getting mocked. And their pitiful life is being mocked. And I think if we could put ourselves in those shoes, we would, it, it seems so foreign to us. Who's going to capture us? Who's going to drag us away? We're musicians. We hang our instruments up on a tree, and they're mocking us and say, hey, pl play some songs. Play some of those Christian songs you love so much. Tell me about your God. And they're thinking anger, hopelessness. Do we have an impotent God? Do we even have a God? And some of those things are things that we can be thinking as well. And said another way, verse 4, the author says this, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? What he's saying, how can we worship when everything is broken? How can we worship when things are not right? How can we worship when it doesn't appear that God is doing what he says he's going to do in parts of Scripture? What, how, how do we sing praises when things are not how they should be. In Babylon, we've got idolatry and king worship. We've got serious racism against the Jews. We can see some of that in the book of Esther. There's no temple. There's no sacrifice. What do we do about our sin? We have no spiritual leaders. We have no holy days. We have no... We, what, what are we doing? How can we worship? Does God have an answer? Well, he, he has an initial answer. We'll give it in a couple different parts. But I think there's this initial answer in Isaiah... That is so good. And if you want to turn with me to, to uh, Isaiah 45, you can. Or you can just listen as I read. But Isaiah 45, God gives an answer. And it's interesting that, that we get this answer, and it's written about 100 years, maybe a little over 100 years before any of these events. So here's this, these captive musicians, and they're saying, how can we worship? But if they thought back a little bit to about 100 years before, the prophet Isaiah gave an answer. And he had written this answer for people that were captured from the northern ten tribes. that were captured, actually, by the Assyrians a hundred years before. But it fits completely with this uh, second group that's captured about a hundred years later by the Babylonians. And this is what Isaiah says. He says in Isaiah 45, and we're going to start um, about verse 18. And God kind of sets the table first. He says this in verse 18. He says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak truth. I declare what is right. So God sets up his argument first in this. He says, Hey, anything that you see out there, I made it. So this, this ground that you're standing on, this air that you breathe, this water that you drink, your skin, your body, I made that. So we should all be saying, I'm listening to him. So God is saying, I made it. I set it up. This is my deal. Now listen to me. And he says in verse 20, Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. The nations have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols. They keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior, 
there is none beside me. So I am, I am God, I am almighty, I am the creator, I am righteous. Humanly, we are sinners, but I am righteous. And what do I do? I save. I take broken people and I bring them to myself and I make things right. Turn to me, it says in verse 22, and be saved all the ends of the earth. Not just the Jews, not just people in the United States. Turn to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. And then he says this, To me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess or swear allegiance. We think of that from Romans 14. We think of that from Philippians chapter 2. And he says, turn to me and be saved. And when we think about the story of redemption, and, we, and when we see ourselves within the context of the history of redemption, we see over and over and over sinful people like us who are guilty before a holy God, who cannot do, nobody can do enough things to be right before a holy God. And the holy God doesn't say, okay, well, I'll change the rules and I'll just make it so I don't care about sin. He does not. He says, I don't even want to look upon sin. He says, this is how high the standard is. He gives us commandments in Scripture. He gives us the Old Testament law to which no mere human can rightly follow, can perfectly follow. He says, but I have a plan. I have set my love upon you, and I've sent my son Jesus, the Redeemer, the just reconciler, who, can, who brings sinful people to himself and makes things right. When understanding that, we, we understand our place in redemptive history. We understand that we are exiles. We understand that we have a destination and we know our guide. And that's one of the reasons that I love history because I like seeing in history, I like seeing people's strengths. I love hearing, wow, look at this is so great. Look at what William Carey did. But if you read the whole biography, you say, had some gaps too, had some weaknesses. The guy reading this, myself, I have gaps, I have weaknesses, I sin. But God brings sinners to himself. Will we not repent and believe and continue in a life of repentance? And that's one of the reasons I love history. It's one of the reasons I like talking with older people. I like talking with someone that says, I was in this war, and here was the terror of this war, and here's how scared I was in this war, and God kept me alive through it, and it changed how I thought. Or I talk to someone and they say, I talked to Harold Condor, the last conversation I had with him before he passed away. And, and at least around me, he was never a bossy guy. He was never a, hey, you know, Thad, let me, let me tell you 17 things you need to do. But he was actually, we were talking about my family, and he was telling some stories, and, we're, and he said, kind of a, here's some thoughts, but he was doing it for, for my benefit. And he said, basically, I wish I would have spent more time with my kids when they were young. And he said, you have seven kids, is that right? I said, yes. And he said, boy, you can spend time with them, huh? Not bossy at all, but just in like a nodding, encouraging, something for you to think about. That's a godly man. That's someone who understands their place in redemptive history. They've seen the hand of God. They've seen highs and they've seen lows. And they say, I'm within God's plan. I'm going to trust in him. What an influence that can have on us. So can we worship? I can if we see our life, if I see my life, within redemptive history. Next, we need to see God as our highest joy. 
It says in verses 5 and 6, let me turn back to uh, Psalm 137. It says in, in verses 5 and 6, it says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand, he's thinking strumming that lyre, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. I can no longer sing. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Well, Jerusalem entails the city of God. It's where the temple would be, the visible dwelling place of God. Um, that's where sacrifice would be, visible forgiveness there, the Holy of Holies. You think of those places in the Old Testament where it would say, and, and the presence of God filled the temple, and there was smoke coming out of it. And you're seeing and thinking of that picture and thinking the awe that would come on people upon seeing that. And they're saying, our temple got sacked. It says that Nebuchadnezzar was taking a lot of the temple things, was cutting them in half, ransacked the place, took all the things. The, the utensils that were used to worship Almighty God, some of them were broken, a lot of them were stolen and were getting dragged off. They might be following carts filled with those temple possessions. Things that we had used in worshiping God are getting dragged off to Babylon, to a godless nation. And this author is saying... I, I, I'd rather starve. I don't even want to be able to play and sing. If I'm a musician, that's how I make money. That's how I both worship God and that's how I feed my family. I'd rather starve and die than be in this godless nation. I'd rather never sing again. And, and I will say this, the, the psalmist says such great true biblical things. He's saying, I want, I want God, I want God, I want God. But truly, if you've studied the exile very much, you know that a lot of them didn't truly. Uh, many exiles assimilated. They didn't want to, want to return to Judah at the end of the exile. In Ezra chapter 1, it says that all were allowed to come back, but a somewhat limited number did go back. If you read in the book of Esther, you'll see there was a sizable Jewish population in that area at that time, you know, 100 years later. So a lot of them did not choose to go back. Many assimilated. Uh, many left, or maybe never, we should really say it, never truly followed God. Why is that? I think we could all agree that there is a human tendency to find joy in that which does not eternally satisfy. There is such a human push to find joy in things that do not really fulfill. If you've done any counseling with anyone at all, we've all heard these things. Hey, pastor, you, you don't understand. I, I need to do this. Hey, hey uh, you don't understand. I, I've prayed about this, and God and I have a deal. I know it says in the Bible that, you, that I'm not supposed to do this, but it's just too much. I, I, I need to do this, and I've prayed about it, and, I, and I'm fine. Or I've prayed about it, and God's just good with me doing this because he knows that this is my love language, or he knows this is something that I need, or he knows this is just what my family has always done. And we make those excuses as well. We might not say them so baldly. We make them in our mind. We compare, compare ourselves with other people and say, well, I, I know this is wrong, but at least it's not as bad as that guy. I mean, that guy's bad. We all do it. But some did not assimilate. Some did stay true to God. Some continued to worship. How did they do that? In the exile, when everything was rotten, God was their central joy. So their house, their country, their health, their family, their friends, their comfort was not their highest joy. 
Those are all great blessings. Those are all great things. But if they disappeared, do we still trust and love and worship God? It doesn't mean if they disappeared it would be easy. I'm not saying that. We still trust and love God. We think of Daniel and his friends who may have been on this trip but probably were on the previous uh, deportation. They could still worship even though everything had changed. Paul and Silas in jail, they could still sing. Ezra, after the exile, you know, they're, they're back in Judah. They go back to Judah after the exile, and everything's great. No, it's not. It's not great at all. They rebuilt the temple, and what did the old people do that, that had seen Solomon's temple? It says they looked at that temple, and they wept because they remembered the glory and the, and the, the enormity of Solomon's temple. And this rebuilt temple is not much. And it says the sound of their crying was drowned out by the sound of the cheering of some of the other people that had never seen the temple, and they were excited. And truly, the good hand of God was upon them. But it was not great. There were people that were against them. You know, you read in Nehemiah when they're rebuilding the wall. They have to have a weapon at their side. People are, because uh, people might be attacking them. They have people trying to undermine them. People are writing letters back to Cyrus, trying to say, hey, bad things are happening right here. Their houses weren't, weren't nice. I mean, it was a rough time in Judah in the exile, at the return from the exile. But what does Ezra say in Nehemiah chapter 8? In Nehemiah 8, it says this. It says, And Ezra opened the book. That's talking about the word of God. In the sight of all the people. They gathered all the people together. And again, this is a remnant. They left some family in the godless nation. Some of the family didn't want to come. Said, oh, my business is going well. I want to stay here. So their families are split up. They're 900 miles away, the way you have to travel. Things are rough, but Ezra opens the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and the people answered, Amen, amen, true, true, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then it says a list of Levites, and it says the Levites helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places, they're standing there hour after hour. And here's what they did. They read from the book, from the law of God, and they read clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So in the midst of hardship, in the midst of 70 years ago, things were great. I remember being a little kid, and Jerusalem was tremendous. And now our walls are not as good. Our temple is not very impressive. There's not very many people here. We're not as safe. There's, this is rough. I can worship, this group is saying, because we look to God Almighty. We see Him as our greatest joy. And look what those leaders did. They read from the book. They read it clearly. They gave the sense. They gave understanding to it. And lastly, the people. They did it so the people could understand. And how about us today? Is God my greatest joy? Yes? No? Sometimes? Do you want Him to be? Want to be able to worship like Ezra and Judah? A few thoughts that I have here. Um, three things that will help us. And maybe jot these down if you want. I think these can be kind of reminder things. Because oftentimes when things are going well, we think, finally, okay, we're good. But, but we know in this world there will be trouble. And we, one of the marks of a mature Christian is someone that says, I keep my eye on the prize regardless of what's happening in life. And so whether you're going through difficulty right now, or you will be going through difficulty in the future, or you're encouraging. This is a big one, too. You're encouraging those that are hurting. Here's a few thoughts. First of all, look to Jesus expectantly. 
Don't focus on your lifeless heart. Don't focus on your discouragement, but look to Jesus expectantly. Um, Look at him with faith, trusting him to help you. Two, pray and ask him to help you worship. There are days every single one of us, maybe you're driving into work, maybe you're dealing with little bitty kids, maybe your health is struggling and you're repeatedly having to go back to the doctor or to the hospital or doing that with someone that you care for, and you're saying, how can I worship? How can I worship? Pray and ask him to help you worship. Be honest with him about the dullness of your heart. Confess any known sin and be assured of forgiveness based on the finished work of the cross. Then ask for more of the Spirit's work on your heart to enable you to feel peace and joy. And even if you don't feel it, speak truth to your heart. Because we can oftentimes speak falsehood to our hearts. And we, we play worst case scenario. And we, we say, well, if this happens, then this will happen. And on oh, it's all a disaster. Speak truth to your heart about the finished work of Christ. Set your, the third thing, set your mind and your heart on the truth of who God is. I found this quote, if, if worship is fire, then truth is a fuel that causes the fire to burn. The more or better fuel, the hotter the fire. So focus prayerfully and relentlessly on the truth of scripture in songs and in prayer. And I would say in all of that, be patient. It's a, it's a pretty normal human thing, but um, I remember my older brother telling me one time, he's like, I'm patient for a little while. And uh, he and I are pretty similar in that. I'm patient for like two minutes. It's not very patient. If I'm going through something difficult, my tendency is to think, I've prayed about it. I have sought the the face of God. This needs to get better. And it does not work that way in life. Occasionally, we have instant answers to prayer. We have all prayed for things, and God has answered instantly. For safety, for for a variety of things. Absolutely. Giving you the words to speak. You're sharing with someone who's not a believer, and you say, Lord, give me wisdom here. And God God gives wisdom, and you, you can share scripture with them. Praise the Lord for instant answered prayers. But most of the time in life, it's a long look. It's a long look. And even those who have been believers for a long time can think, man, I've been been dealing with this difficulty for seven days or seven minutes. But there's people that are in pain. When Johnny Erickson Tata at the Sing conference that Red Ferns and us and some other people were at in Nashville a few weeks ago, there's a woman in a wheelchair who desperately wants to raise her hands in the air even just to lead in singing. Johnny Erickson Tata, and she is repeatedly have to remind herself, and she's telling the group, this is not what I'm going to be in a resurrected body, but this is what I have right here, and I'm going to trust in him, and I'm going to worship him. And when she led that hymn, trying to, I would not want to lead a song. I would not want to have to do the timing. And she desperately wanted to be able to stand and lead and do the timing of that song, and she did the best she can, and she did great. And I think everybody there that, 10,000 or 12,000, whatever people there were saying, praise our Heavenly Father. Her, the, the timing that she might have prayed for at one time, it's not happening. But he's tr- she's trusting and she's worshiping regardless of her circumstances. So look to Jesus expectantly. Pray and ask him to help you worship. Set your mind and your heart on the truth of who God is and be patient. So that's what we need to do. We need to have God as our highest joy. We need to see ourselves within the story of redemption. And thirdly, we need to see God as he truly is. That he is absolutely a God of justice. He's also absolutely a God of mercy. He's a God of love, but he's also a God of wrath. He's a God of righteousness. So let's look at verses 7 through 9 as we get into that's really the imprecatory part of the imprecatory psalms. 
says this, remember our Lord against the Edomites. And just there, just think about our enemies. There isn't, there isn't a verse in Scripture that, that backs up this exact wording, but the Edomites had repeatedly, um, those followers of Esau had repeatedly been against Israel. It says, remember them, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem. Um, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Well, I think every one of us in here would read this, these last few verses, and say, oh, what is going on right there? You know, we're a church that upholds life. We rejoice in Sanctity of Life Sunday and know that every day is Sanctity of Life Day. Is God upholding murder here? Is this something we teach our five-year-olds? Is this something that we apply to our kids not playing well together? What do you do with a verse like this? Do you do as some people do and you say, well, that's just one of those sections that I don't follow in Scripture because it's hard or it doesn't make sense to me. Someone must have added that later. We don't want to do any of those things. We want to look at it accurately. So a little bit on the imprecatory psalms. We're not going to have anything long on this, but the imprecatory psalms are basically the psalmist calling down God's judgment on people that are in rebellion against God. This is not a personal thing like, you know, I was there and you stomped on my foot. God break his foot off. That's not imprecatory psalm, okay? This is those from the outside are besmirching the name of God or against God's people. And God, you work in your justice and don't let evil prevail. That's really the basis in imprecatory psalms. Um, I didn't write them all down, but it's 59, 69, 79, 109, um, there's, there's 10 in total. You'll see them as you, as you read through the Psalms. Um, I, think, I think a couple things can inform us. I think all of Scripture can inform us, and maybe a little more specifically, prophecy can inform us on these imprecatory Psalms. And specifically to this one, um, I, think, I think a couple verses kind of speak to us. So this would be under prophecy. So Jeremiah 51 says this. It says, um, and Jeremiah was written about a hundred and between a hundred and a hundred and thirty years before what we're dealing with in Psalm 137. So a prophet has said truth that this author is latching on to. I'm a hundred percent sure he's speaking this psalm, these last few verses of this psalm, in light of a prophecy that says God's going to work. So this is Jeremiah the prophet, Jeremiah 51. Verse 56 says this, For a destroyer has come upon her, upon Babylon. Her warriors are taken, their bows are broken in pieces, for the Lord is a God of recompense. He will surely repay. So the four kind of main words in the Hebrew are, are, are highlighted, I think, in your handout and on the screen possibly behind me. Um, look at Psalm 137, verse 8, and it says this, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. And so if you can think of me with that, so uh, in, it says a destroyer has come and it in Jeremiah, and it says destroyed in the psalm. Then it says Babylon, and in Jeremiah it says Babylon in Psalm 137. And then it uses the term recompense in the ESV that I'm using um, the psalm says done to us, but those are the same Hebrew words, recompense and done to us. And then we have surely repay in Jeremiah 51, and we have repays in Psalm 137. 
And so what we have, the, the writer of this Psalm 137, he's saying, God, you have promised us through the prophet Jeremiah that you are going to make things right, that you are going to take this evil that's being perpetrated against your people and you are going to fix it and make it right. And he's saying, God, work now. God, work now. I hung my instrument up on this tree. I'm crouching by the water. I'm being tormented by my captors. God, work in the ways that you have said you would work. Please work. I'm, I'm looking to Scripture, and your Scripture says that you work. I'm trusting in you. You're my highest joy. But, but, but work in the ways that you have said you will work. Isaiah chapter 13, which again would be about 100 years before, another prophet says this. It talks about Babylon. It talks about the day of the Lord. It talks about punishment of sinners, actually by, by an outside nation, by the Medes, by an outside nation. And then it says this in Isaiah 13. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. So the Israelite prisoners are really saying this. God, fulfill your word. Don't let these evil people besmirch your name. Now, a few other things with the imprecatory psalms. Um, just a few thoughts. Um, personal revenge is not okay in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Um, it's always done, even in the Old Testament, in the context of the nation and on leaders in the nation and on wise people in the nation. Again, this isn't someone that kicks you in the shin and you hunt them down and then you kick him in the shin out in the woods and then you, you call yourself good. Um, there are cities of refuge that they could flee to. Um, and the New Testament as well, what does God say? Vengeance is mine, I will repay. So this is not personal revenge against one person. Uh, two, uh, this would be legal punishment of the wicked is taught in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The nation of Israel, we could look at whole lists of, you know, this is what happens when people sin. This is what the nation is going to do. This is what we uphold that we are not going to allow this sin to happen. And as a group, we're going to back you up on this. So I didn't go and just stone someone myself. And there's places in the Old Testament that talk about stoning. But I should be one picking up a rock as the entire group as well should be saying, we are not going to let this sin just float along. We're not going to be okay with people being evil and besmirching the name of God. We're going to follow his word in that. Now there's clearly no stoning in the New Testament. But there's a lot of, um, God has desires and expectations. We have chapters like Romans 13 say that, you know, the, the government does not wield the sword in vain. They're, they have a legal use. They help put fences on people, and people need fences. So legal punishment of the wicked is taught in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Love for enemies, number three, is taught as well in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5, I say to you, love your enemies. Love those that persecute you. It's easy to love those that love you. So much harder to love those that are hurting you, hurting you, and hurting you. But Matthew 5 says, love your, in your enemies. And the fourth thing, Jesus emphasizes the ministry of reconciliation if people repent. Over and over and over. The ministry of reconciliation if people repent. But he also emphasizes terrible judgment if they do not. Um, preaching on reconciliation is more fun and more often done, especially in our country, uh, probably around the world as well. And that's good and right that we should talk reconciliation because we are supposed to be ministers 
and reconcilers ourselves if we're believers. But terrible judgment if they do not needs to be emphasized as well. I know in the adult Sunday school class, the drilling down class, uh, a few weeks in a row of end times, final judgment, hell, eternity, lake of fire. We've done that, talked about that with the teens. And I told the teens when we talked about it, I said, this probably isn't a topic that a ton of youth groups are going through right now. We're going to talk about hell and eternal punishment. But if we do not, we're skipping parts. We talked about if, if there is an, an area that people are going to be backing away from, if they're going to say, ah, I don't know if all the Bible is accurate, eternal punishment and God's vengeance is probably the first one. We think, oh, it's probably the deity of Christ or, or it's inerrancy of Scripture. It's really actually because of their non-belief inerrancy and non-belief in deity, but um, a belief in a literal hell, a literal punishment is probably the first one to go where people say, eh, that offends my heart. It's, it's a hard topic. We talked with a teenager after Sunday school today, and she was crying because she cares for friends that have died at a young age. She didn't know where their place was with Christ. There was a lot in Scripture of God's reconciliation. But there's a lot in Scripture of terrible judgment if we do not. A couple verses of I could read, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 18 through 21. Paul says this, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Ah, amazing. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then in Ezekiel 18, God says this, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? And not rather that they should turn from his way and sin? Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. So when we look at this imprecatory psalm, when we agonize with the author and we put ourselves in his shoes, when we look at his life and you say, oh, can't imagine, can't imagine, can't imagine, I think that gives some help to us in this room when we say, God cares for his children. But there is deep, deep hurt. And how can we worship? I can worship God regardless of circumstances. When I see my life within redemptive history, when I recognize God and I push myself and I'm pushed by the word and I'm pushed by the Holy Spirit to see God truly as my highest joy. And lastly, when I see God as he truly is. And if I could say this another way, I deserve to be dashed against a rock these little ones, but I deserve to be dashed against a rock, but almighty, perfect Jesus was dashed in my place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize our sin. We recognize our weakness. Those of you, us who trust you as Savior, rejoice and rejoice and rejoice that our sins are not counted against us. Our sins are placed on Jesus, the 
cross. Lord, if those are, there are those here that do not know you as Savior, Lord, it's universal that we're all dealing with difficult things or have dealt with difficult things or will de- deal with difficult things. But Lord, for those here who are here and do not trust you as Savior, Lord, may they trust you today. May they, by your grace, turn from their sin and turn to you, Almighty God, who has his hand reached out for the brokenhearted and will gladly forgive sinners. Not little sins, not medium sins, all sin, Lord. All sin is an affront to you. Lord, we rejoice in that. May we not have rest if you are not our greatest joy. May we see you as you truly are. And we worship you together, Father. In your name, amen.